This is Dan McPeak, and I'm the creator of Spoons. Spoons tells the amazing asexual love story about 25-year-old free-spirited rocker named Kaya who falls in love with uptight and quiet Jordan. But Jordan has a secret that could change everything. The story is not an autobiography, but I do draw, or I try to draw, a lot from my own personal experience and the experience of other people in the ace community that I've met over the last few years. And with any spectrum when it comes to gender and sexuality, there are so many beautiful and amazing stories to tell. So help us tell this one. If you're watching this on Facebook or Instagram, send this to your friends and your family and check out our website and learn more about the project and how you can help. So please help Spoons come to life. Please visit us on Facebook at Spoons Series, Instagram at Spoons Web Series, or go to our Kickstarter at kickstarter.com slash projects slash Dan McPeak slash Spoons. Well, hi, and welcome to another episode of Endeavors. Thank you for letting me cross-promote as I try to get my web series on a sexuality made uh, we have a campaign that's running for another three weeks and we are trying to raise thirty thousand in total so any little bit helps as i said there you can go to our facebook instagram or our kickstarter kickstarter.com slash project slash dynamic peak slash spoons to donate and we've got some pretty sweet rewards if you pledge uh, for the next 48 hours we are doing a poetry reward giveaway pledge 40 dollars more and i will write you a personalized poem but this is a podcast. This is not about my web series. This is not about my Kickstarter campaign. This is not about raising money. This is about Marshall Pinkowski today, who is the artistic director of Opera Italier in Toronto. And Opera Italier has a new show coming up angel which is streaming 7 p.m eastern this thursday evening uh and that you will have access to the stream because it's live streaming on thursday you'll have access to it until november 12th angel marks the culmination of composer edwin huzinga's commission for the company in association with associate composer christopher mcgon the 70-minute film will include stage direction by Marshall, the full corpse of the artists of Atelier Ballet, and chore choreography by founding choreographer director Jeanette Lajeunesse Zing. Uh, some of the featured singers include renowned soprano Nisha Berger-Gosman, tenor Colin Ainsworth, soprano Morel Asselin, baritone Jesse Blumberg, soprano Megan Lindsay, baritone John Tibbetts in his opera Atelier debut, and baritone Douglas Williams. As I mentioned, uh, Marshall Pinkowski is the founding artistic director of Opera Atelier, and his love began uh, particularly with the 17th and 18th uh, centuries of music, theater, and dance. Uh, he has studied Baroque opera and ballet in Paris and uh, continued his studies at the University of South Australia, uh, Flinders University in South Australia under Professor Denis Barnett. He founded Opera Atelier in 1985 with his partner, Jeanette Lazenich Zing, uh, and has worked closely in a range of period productions in close collaboration with Tafel Music Baroque Orchestra. Uh, in 2013, he had his Salzburg Festival debut with Mozart's Lucio Silla, and he ma recently made his directorial debut at La Scala in Milan. He has been named uh, the Chevalier dans l'Ordre des Arts et des Lettres by the Government of France, which is the Officer of the Order of Arts and Letters, 
he is also the recipient of the Toronto Arts Award, the Ruby Award for Outstanding Contribution to Operating Canada, and the Time Magazine Award for Classical Music. Angel live streams this Thursday, October 28th at 7 p.m. Eastern. This is my conversation with Marshall Pinkowski. Marshall Bunkowski, hello, how are you this morning? Great, thank you, how are you? Doing all right, doing all right. It's, uh, you know, fall is definitely here, I'll tell you that much. <laughs> are you, a, are you a, uh, a fan of the fall? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I, I definitely don't like it super cold, I definitely don't like it super hot, I'm, I, I very much am a product of my West Coast upbringing. You are, yes. You see, I'm, I'm a huge fan of the fall and the winter. I just love a snowstorm. So but that's my East European background. <laughs> my father always said you should be on a horse in Siberia in a snowstorm. That's your roots. So I don't know. It seems to stick. I mean, I do like the snow. Like, you know, I, I love like, you know, the, the crisp crinkle of a snow. But I was working on a Netflix show this past February um, and Victoria had the largest three-day snowfall we've ever had. And I had to work out in it, basically stopping our traffic for three days. <laughs> it, it was about 40 hours. Wow. Um, and, you know, the, the, there comes a point when it's just too much snow. Yes. yes. You know, like, it's just, there's just, yeah. we're just like, I can't, I don't, I don't, I don't, have, yeah. So, but, I, you know, I, I, uh, I do like winter. Yeah, you know, I'm curious for you, you know, as someone who has such a, a movement and, and physical based art form, how you prepare for, you know, changing seasons and, and how that might might affect your rehearsal process. You know, it doesn't it doesn't affect our rehearsal in particular because of course we're always in we're always in a completely enclosed environment we rehearse in in studios that are usually deep in the interior of a theater and so uh, I mean our singers our dancers they do in the winter they do, do need to have more time to warm up and prepare themselves but other than that uh, it's not it's, it doesn't have a, a huge impact I find that people have more energy in the cooler weather, even if they prefer the hot weather. Uh, the hot weather, I think, slows things down. Uh, the humidity is better for singers for singing. The dancers love feeling warm. But my observation over the years has been when the weather is cold, people are like squirrels. They start moving fast and they start picking up fast. And that's, uh, that's what I like to see. I like to be in a rehearsal environment where things are moving, where people are well prepared, and we keep things going. You know, in in an art form that is very very collaborative, how have you had to change your practices, change your dynamics at all, with you know, in during the pandemic and with all the the physical distancing that that has been happening? Well, the physical distancing has been a a tremendous challenge without a question. But at the same time, uh, because so much of what we do is dance-based and our singers are used to working with dancers as well and sharing the stage with them. No one has a better sense of physical distance than dancers. Uh, you develop that from your earliest time in the studio where you have to share space. You can't run into people. You're all doing the same exercise, but there's a real sense of how you move and how you are aware of your peripheral vision. So, uh, I mean, Jeanette, my, my partner, uh, my core artistic director and choreographer, uh, she had created, for example, our previous, um, our previous film of Handel's Resurrection, which was supposed to happen in a theater. Then it turned into a film. Then there were additional pandemic restrictions. Jeanette had to reimagine all of the patterning of that dancing. And of course, the dancing for 18th century music is extremely pattern-oriented. Uh, she had to completely reimagine that, thinking of physical distancing the whole time. But again, it was an interesting challenge. It was an interesting choreographic challenge. And uh, at the end of the day, although I think although she would have preferred not to have done it, 
uh, I think she quite enjoyed the process and uh, the dancers as well. Now, the rehearsing with masks was very, very uh, challenging because it's very difficult to breathe, particularly for the dancers. It meant that our singers had to go to Kerner Hall, pre-record all of their performance. Then that recording was sent back to them with click tracks. And then when we were in rehearsal, they were rehearsing to their own voice so that they would be able to have their lip syncing perfectly in place. Fortunately, most of them had done a certain amount of lip syncing before. And so it really came off without a hitch. It was very, very good. And I do think, I do like to think that we're able to take challenges like this. Uh, it's like being a kid in theater arts class where you're told, you know, give me some really bad news, but look happy the whole time. Or give me some happy news and cry while you're telling me. It's like an exercise. So particularly when we were working on uh, Resurrection, which was just before this, there was a great deal of sort of passionate response between the singers, people in each other's arms, and that all had to stop. So we had to imply that we had to create a sense of intimacy and closeness while still maintaining the physical distance. And I would say it added to a, a wonderful sense of dramatic tension rather than our saying, oh, what a drag, we have to do this. I think most people thought how fascinating. It's, uh, we know it's not something we're going to have to live with forever. So let's try to enjoy this challenge and see where it takes us. And so that was very interesting. By the time we got to this production of Angel, uh, the, we were operating under an actor contract and because of lifting of some of the restrictions, we no longer had to worry about physical distancing and all this, although the singers are still working to uh, a playback of their own voice, they are able to be physically close to each other, touching each other, being in each other's arms, which was, uh, again, really important. You know, that given that I think dance especially is such an intimate kind of relationship between performer and audience, how how do you recreate that sense of closeness with that digital barrier? You know, I think it has a great deal to do with who is sitting behind the camera. And we've had the great good fortune of working with uh, an astonishing young filmmaker named Marcel Tanzona. A number of years ago, uh, we were looking for someone to do a promotional video for our production of Charpentier's Mayday uh, just before we took it to Versailles. And uh, someone in the office said, you should really look at some of the young people coming out of the radio, television, arts program and the film program at Ryerson University, some really interesting talent. So Jeanette and I started looking at some of the examples. And of course, we were looking almost exclusively at rap and hip hop videos, but one person's videos stood out particularly in terms of the spectacular editing, the speed of the editing. and. Uh, just a tremendous energy behind them. Got in touch with him, brought Marcel in to do our first promotional video for May Day, which was an outrageous, outrageous video, a big step for him. And he was so successful, we kept bringing him back and not wanting to sound patronizing, but nurturing him over the past four years and uh, giving him more and more responsibility. And he has been more than up for the challenge. Now, Everyone has got to know him. And this is one of the wonderful things about Opera Atelier. The company has grown organically over 35 years. Uh, singers, dancers, instrumentalists, our relationship with taco music, all of those things has been something that has been gradual. Uh, we've grown together, we've changed together, we've made major changes together. And when people, new people do come in to join us, it's usually someone who has been recommended by someone who works with us. So, uh, by the time Marcel took over this particular project, everyone was so comfortable with him there. We simply treated Marcel and his crew as our audience. We didn't feel that we were lacking an audience. We played to him and we played to the people who were in the room with him. And because we, we knew him, we knew how much he was focusing on what the singers and dancers were doing. Uh, he had a focus that was even more intense than what an audience would have. It actually turned into a wonderful rapport between the camera and the performance. 
you know, it's interesting. You, you mentioned that you were looking at a lot of sort of young, you know, filmmakers of the next generation. And I'm curious, you know, I think it for a lot of people, dance, especially classical dance and, and big choral music is entertainment for maybe slightly a slightly older generation, maybe, maybe you know, a, a slightly wealthier generation in, in, in comparison. Do you find that having, uh, you know, somebody who, who's younger working with you can maybe help bridge that, that gap be- between people who might not otherwise see a show like this? I think it can help bridge, but at the same time, I think it's more a question of perception than what's happening in actuality. Uh, many people feel that opera, that ballet are not for them, not because they've gone to it, experience and experience it and thought, oh, this doesn't work for me, but rather they have a preconceived idea that it is elitist, that it requires a certain amount of, of uh, you have to be an initiate, that you have to be privileged, that you have to have a great deal of money. So the answer for me really isn't necessarily to try to find ways to, uh, to change what we're doing. It has much more to do with how do we lure people in and young people in so they can actually see and make an informed decision. Because we find when people do come to the productions, invariably the response is extremely positive. We do have a remarkably young audience for what sounds like an extremely elitist art form at Opera Italian. We always have had a particularly young audience that's here and when we tour. And of course, we have the busiest international touring schedule of any theater company in Canada. We're on the road a great, a great deal. Now, one thing that we have done, though, that I think has helped, uh, I mean, we do have very attractive people on stage. I think that's important. We cast carefully, the voice and the technique of the dancers and the voice of the singers comes first, of course, but we're casting as though we are in a film. I expect people to be able to look at the stage and find the people singing the roles to be believable. Uh, But also, interesting thinking in terms of an elitist art form or an extravagant art form, we have always looked at the great advertisers who are selling luxury items as a takeoff point. Because at the end of the day, although I feel as though theater of any type is something that's necessary for life, uh, speaking as a theater person who's been in theater for his entire life, but the average person, theater is a luxury. Opera is a luxury. Live theater is a luxury. And a luxury that they may not choose to allow themselves, even though they may spend more in a bar in a single evening than a theater ticket. How do people sell luxury items, whether it's perfume or jeans. Why would you spend $200 on a pair of jeans? It's ludicrous. Why would you spend $300 on a bottle of perfume? It's, and it became clear, it's become clear over the years as we've looked at the great advertisers, which I think is a real art form, that more and more people are not selling a product by showing you a picture of the product. They are selling you an idea saying, you will feel like this if you wear this. You will have an experience like this if you buy this product. No one is going to hold up a dress and say, buy this dress, it's $5,000. But if you create an atmosphere that says, wearing Armani makes you feel like this, wearing Dior makes you feel like this, well, three quarters of the really great ads that are out there, people are frequently not wearing clothes at all. It's, It's not about the clothes. It's about the idea behind it. Look at the stupendous success of the Gap ads uh, for, they, they change now over the past three or four years. But before that, Gap wasn't, it's ostensibly about clothing, but it was about beautiful young people and beautiful bodies. And we really explored that ourselves, not sort of gratuitously, but a great deal of the Baroque and early Romantic repertoire is extremely sensual and sexually oriented. I think it's important for people to realize this repertoire, what you find in the later 19th century is a reaction against the Baroque. The Baroque world was a world that was extremely sensual and accepting of the fact that we are sensual, sexual beings. Uh, So people often think, oh, if it's even older than Puccini, then it must be even more uh, staid, but really quite the opposite. So we've tried to show that in our advertisement and how we reach out. You know, the, this idea of 
luxury harkens back to you know the big sort of the first little while of the pandemic there was a big discussion about whether or not the arts are or or, or should be uh, an essential service you know because people want to netflix somebody was making these shows um but we obviously wouldn't put ourselves in, in the same breath as you know nurses and and and, and frontline responders um where, where, where do you fall can something be both a luxury and an essential service? Absolutely, it can. Our whole healthcare system is a luxury. It's also an essential service. I mean, we decide, we decide what we can live with or what we can't live with in terms of health. We make decisions that people in third world countries, they don't even have a chance to make that decision. So I think we need to realize what we consider health, what we consider uh, necessary uh, is extremely subjective. We're speaking as extremely privileged North Americans or Europeans when we're talking about that. That being said, I do think that the arts are an essential, should fall under the category of an essential service. Uh, I think that we need to realize we need to minister not just to people's physical well being, we need to minister to their intellectual, their emotional, and even their spiritual well being. And that's precisely what the arts do. Uh, perhaps not for everyone, but then a daily or a, a yearly trip to the doctor isn't for everyone either. But you need to have that option there and have it in place, particularly in times of extreme duress, like we've just been through. Because suddenly they, the arts can reach out, they can speak to people, they can give them comfort, they can give them a focus uh, that they perhaps would not have looked for uh, in a more relaxed environment. We feel that we built our audience enormously over during the period of the pandemic, simply because by film we've been able to reach out to more people. And I feel that there have been a large, there's been a greater variety of people looking for something to fill a void in their lives at this time. A void that usually has been filled up with simply the daily grind of, of, of jobs we don't particularly like, stuff that takes up all of our time, and suddenly all of those things were gone. And it's like people suddenly retiring and thinking, great, now I can play golf. But are you going to play golf for 20 years? I mean, people start to fall apart. And I think that started happening during the pandemic as well. People did start falling apart. Relationships started falling apart. And I think the arts are something that can knit that together for us. You know, it's funny. People are always, you know, after the first year, everyone was like, I don't have anything else to watch on Netflix or or, or, or Amazon or, or whatever platform they own. How do you think you've been able to connect with sort of the this Netflix generation, if you will? You know, I think uh, I think it's partially because of what we are what we are presenting is something that is highly unusual. Remember, we're not producing Giselle and Swan Lake and Madam Butterfly and Forza. Uh, we're producing repertoire for the most part that is highly unusual. And that in itself is interesting to people, that they're suddenly encountering music, they're encountering dancing, they're encountering ballet that they have never encountered before, sometimes interpreting stories that are extremely well known to them. But the very fact that it was new is new, I think, has uh, gives a certain interest and a certain edge to what we're doing, as opposed to finding more and more outrageous ways to recycle extremely well-known repertoire. That's not to say I don't love well-known repertoire. I mean, Opera Italia has been producing Mozart for a long time, but the very fact that we're producing Mozart on period instruments instantly makes it intriguing. That in itself, people thinking, well, what is a production on period instruments? What do you mean by period instruments? Why would you do it? And to uh, get to the people that they understand, it's not about being a museum. We're not making believe we're stepping back in time. I would love to step back in time, but I have no intention as an artist to try to recreate what someone else did. That's something to happen in a laboratory, not in uh, a studio as you're rehearsing, but rather we're taking a look at the past to see if there are techniques and things that have been lost that we can use now to challenge ourselves in new ways. No one is playing a violin with a Baroque bow because they want to make believe they're Mozart. They're using a Baroque bow because they want to bow in a different way to create a different sound and a different dynamic. 
And that's true across the board, how we are behaving as actors, as dancers, as singers, as designers. We want to challenge ourselves and rather than simply gratuitously trying to make something more and more outrageous until we get to the point that we run out of outrageousness, we want to try to be coherent, but still do something new. And coherence to me is something that's very important. And I think during the pandemic, it's being particularly important. Uh, you, you talked a lot about um, Barack, and I know you all have always had a strong interest in sort of 17th and 18th century Music, it comes sort of just the, just after the Restoration, kind of during the French Revolution, um, Charles II, Napoleon, very sort of very interesting period in, in sort of European history, um, big, you know, fanciful sort of where. Um, musically, what do you like about that era and, and sort of that, that, that style of, of music and, and culture and, and presentation? There are, two, there are several things that appeal to me in particular, and they appeal to me and to my partner, Jeanette, even before we had any thought of having an opera or a ballet company. Uh, first of all, I love the dynamics of the music, of Baroque music. And when I first encountered Baroque music being played on period instruments, it was about 35, 38 years ago, when I heard Tafel music for the first time. And someone had given Jeanette and me tickets for free. We had no idea what we were going to hear. And so we went in as absolute novices, just knowing that we were going to hear an orchestra. And it was something of an epiphany. The orchestra came out on the stage, sat down. We didn't know they were playing period instruments. And for the uninitiate, other than a harpsichord, it looks pretty much like a normal orchestra. Except everyone sat down and started tuning. And then as you waited for the conductor to appear, because as dancers, of course, conductors are your lifeline, to our amazement, this large orchestra, everyone looked at each other, took a breath, and launched into some extremely complex and extremely exciting music with no one conducting. That in itself was a revelation that suddenly you had an orchestra of people where no one could think, oh, I'm second violin, or I'm sitting in the back. I don't really matter. Everyone mattered because everyone had to make music together. Everyone was literally and figuratively on the edge of their seats. It was like being in a jazz concert, a really great jazz concert, where people have to be on the same wavelength the entire time. We were amazed at, at the excitement of watching an orchestra play without a yo-yo ma being there, without a great star being there, simply the physicality of their playing. We also, though, as dancers, we both had strong theater and music educations, but we suddenly, attending Tafel music more and more, we suddenly started to read the, the program notes and realized we were hearing music from operas and from ballets we had never heard of before. And yet it was some of the most exciting music we had ever heard. From a dance point of view, exciting, because rhythmically, rhythmically there was something about it that made it extremely danceable, uh, for, for want of a better word. Uh, there was a wonderful driven quality about so much of the music that lent itself to, uh, to dancing and to a particular style of dancing. But the vocal music as well, to me, this is where the big divide happens. The vocal music of the 17th and 18th century, but particularly the 17th and 18th century, reflects text in a way that the 19th century lost touch. That's not to say there's something wrong with the 19th century. They were trying to do something else. They were looking at long vocal lines. The text became less important the emotional content became more important. But the text for a Baroque opera is practically the same length as a play by Racine. It's words and words and words, exactly like the earliest opera, Monteverdi, which is text-driven. And it's the fact that the Baroque music is so text-driven that I find so thrilling. It means that singers cannot just focus on making beautiful sounds and taking for granted that they're going to carry people on a wave of sound it's about delivery of text. It's about storytelling. And singers have got to be great actors, not just people who have beautiful vowels. Nothing against beautiful vowels. But if, you're, if you are going to be performing, charpentier, learning, there has to be a connection with text that is every bit as strong as any straight actor on stage. 
this also has again an enormous, enormous appeal for us. And then learning more about the Baroque dance. I mean, first we went to New York to the Library of Performing Arts to find out more there. Then we moved to Paris and had an extended period of time there where we were able to work in the archives of the Bibliothèque Nationale, the Comédie Française, uh, discovered more about the dance notation of the period, more about the dynamic of the dancing of the period. And it took us into a whole different world kinetically than that of classical ballet. Although we both began in classical ballet, this added to that body of knowledge in a very exciting way. You, you know, you, you mentioned text. I remember when I was in theater school, my teacher would always talk about, you know, connotation, denotation, subtext, um, and even, you know, diction. You mentioned vowels and consonants. How, how much, I guess, text or, or textual work, textual massaging, if you will, um, do you do with the singers in, in a lead up to a performance like this? An enormous amount, particularly when we are dealing with French repertoire or Italian repertoire, but the French in particular, uh, we always have uh, a, a, French, a French coach, but a French diction coach, an expert who comes and works with us, a very dear friend who is a director who lives in Paris, Charles D'Amelio. And uh, it really is a question of, of, of deconstructing the text, not so much to look for subtext. I'm not really interested in subtext, besides it hadn't been invented at the time. Subtext didn't interest people in the 17th century. Anything you needed to know, the actor told you. And if they were thinking something, they would say it out loud in a soliloquy. Subtext was, it's not that they didn't, they didn't have the sophistication. It had no interest for them. They would have said, why? If there's subtext, then we'll say it out loud. And if we don't say it out loud, then obviously the audience doesn't need to know. And so this, Anyway, I'm, I'm getting off of your question. We bring text experts in to make certain that people are delivering the text with the clarity and the declamation that would be necessary if they were speaking the text. And that's what we do before we even add music. In fact, frequently, we insist that our singers continue speaking the text for their recitative in rehearsal while the accompanist is knocking off behind them as they deliver that text. So it requires that the singers take enormous freedom, that they take that text and the text is where you begin. It's not where you end. And then it's up to them to take that as actors and take it elsewhere and for the orchestra to follow them. That means you need a great conductor like we have, David Paulus, who frequently puts his baton down and sits down and says, well, I'm with you in spirit, but it's really between you and the orchestra now, and I'll pick up when this difficult section begins. You know, William Christie, the great founder of Les Arts and one of the great interpreters of this repertoire in the world in, in, in the 20th century, he delivered a very interesting lecture at, um, at the Juilliard in which he held up a page of recitative, of 17th century recitative. And he said to the student, this is, an incomplete document. It's a brilliant document. It's, uh, it's an attempt, perhaps a rather crude attempt, to try to recreate the inflection of the speaking voice, but it only becomes complete when the actor takes it as their takeoff point and fleshes it out in terms of declamation and dramatically. And this puts a tremendous onus on the singers. Uh, and we have very long rehearsal processes. When people come to us, they know they're going to work long, they're going to work hard. And uh, many singers say, I can afford to sing with opera telly only once a year because one contact with you, I could fit in two, opera uh, two contacts with another company. But they do come back to us because the challenge is so true. Uh, you know, you, you were mentioning stars. Uh, I know you, you do have, well, you have many stars, but uh, you know, at least one person who at least a non-opera fan would probably recognize uh, in, in Misha Brugger-Grasman. Yes. Um, how, did, how did she become involved in this? Well, we've worked with Misha for more than a decade now. And interestingly enough, you know, Misha has this insatiable uh, imagination. Misha wants to do everything. She wants to explore everything. She wants to look at all types of music. 
If she sees something that thrills her, she wants to be part of it. And more than a decade ago, Misha actually came backstage after one of our productions of 17th century French repertoire, introduced herself and said she would love to have a meeting and I'd love to have a chance to talk to see if there's something that we could do together. So I would never have approached Misha. She, I thought that uh, financially, her schedule, everything, that she would be completely uh, impossible to, to book. But it started a dialogue in terms of what was interesting to her, both in terms of the Mozart repertoire, but other repertoire as well, Gluck in particular. And uh, Misha was our Elettra in our first production of Idomeneo, a stupendous, stupendous success uh, as a production and also for her, for which she won a Dora Award. And it began a wonderful relationship that continues to this day. Misha works with us a great deal. She also is our artist in residence for a second year in a row and artist advisor to our board of directors. So on so many levels. And if you can imagine Misha's commitment is such when she was getting ready for Elektra, she was also making her debut in London in England with, with a major orchestra there. I, I believe it was one of the, it was the BBC orchestra. So she was very, very taken up with that. And at the same time, she wanted to be able to continue working on Elektra as often as possible. And she asked if Jeanette and I could meet her in London. So we took our holiday that year by going to London, renting a large studio, and a harpsichord and a harpsichordist. Every day when she was not rehearsing with the BBC orchestra, Misha spent three to five hours with us for two weeks working nonstop on that role and working on the staging for that role. So that sort of commitment and that degree of energy is, I think, extraordinary. And even after more than 10 years, it's the same degree of energy and commitment that we get from Misha, no matter what we do together. How how does how does something like that then you know rub off on the rest of the the performers and even the rest of the crew, just having that well, one I, person that's you know so dedicated. Well, I think Misha walked into an atmosphere where that sort of dedication was part and parcel of the culture of the company. So more than anything, the relief was that as we got to know Misha, that although she was an international star. She was someone who continued to rehearse with the same values uh, that as what were so important to all of us. So uh, Misha never comes in feeling that she is different from anyone else. And I must say, many of our other singers also have very exceptional international careers. Uh, and so I think they are on the same wavelength. Everyone is there for the same reason. And uh, there is no favoritism for anyone, as you would find often when you are working with big international stars. Uh, certainly the occasions that I worked with people who were in sort of a major, major league. Sometimes I found there have been people who worked as hard as everyone else. Other times there are people who wanted to be treated with enormous care and deference, which is boring and uh, makes it far more difficult to achieve the things you want to achieve. Misha is a true artist through and through. What she really wants is to be in the studio and rehearsing. That's what she loves more than me. Uh, now, Angel, uh, which is the, the, the piece that's upcoming here, um, it sort of includes both um, John Milton's Paradise Lost and poetry by Rainer Maria Rilke. Um, Talk to us a, a, a little with, with obviously new, I think new translations that, that you've commissioned. Um, yes. Talk to us about that because, you know, Rilke is something I can definitely see with opera just, you know, given when he lived, he's German, you know, he's, he's, he's very imagistic. I mean, as, as great as Paradise Lost is, I think Milton is a more interesting choice um, to include uh, in a work like this. How, how did those text excerpts come together? Well, I need to back up and give you a little history of the sort of genesis of the entire piece, because it, it's something that happened, again, like so many things at Opera Italia, it was never planned. It happened rather organically, and now suddenly we find ourselves that we have a 70 minute opera on our hands that had never been 
uh, part of our master plan at all. Uh, and I love it when things happen that way. In 2015, uh, we were bringing a production of Lully's Army to the Royal Opera House at Versailles. More than 80 of us on the, on the road, if you can imagine, all of Tafel Music, our singers, our dancers, heads of department, sets, costumes. And, uh, and that is that great opera about the Muslim warrior princess and the Christian uh, knight, Renaud, and their impossible attraction to each other. And Jeanette and I arrived first in Versailles, and we arrived on the day of the massacre in the Bataclan nightclub, the, that terrible terrorist attack. Uh, we were unaware that it had happened. We received a phone. We received a phone call in our hotel room from, uh, I believe, it was a chair of our board, telling us that this had happened, that Paris was shutting down, that it was an extremely dangerous situation, and they thought that we should all come home and not perform. Uh, Jeanette and I put a hold on all of that and said we didn't feel comfortable canceling. We needed to know more about the situation, and uh, as we found out more. Indeed, uh, there had been no exaggeration. All major cultural institutions were closing. Uh, it was a crazy atmosphere in Paris and in Versailles at the time. Nevertheless, I'm very proud to say that all of our singers, all of our dancers, all of Kampamidu made the choice to get on planes over the next two days and come to join us anyway, despite the warnings that it was not a good idea to be there. Uh, it was an incredible offer to be producing at the time, given the attack that just happened. And we were producing an opera about the Muslim and the Christian world and the collide between those two worlds. In fact, our set designer, Gerard Gauchy, had created a fantastic togra, uh, and he had brought in uh, a specialist in, in uh, Persian script to create some of the designs for us. When the curtain went up on the production, there was an audible gasp in the audience. It was like we had planned this. And we were the first company to produce in the Royal Opera House after the uh, terrorist attack. And it was, it was a big deal. It was seen as a, a, an act of great solidarity on the part of Toronto, on the part of Canada. And after the opening night, as a thank you, the director of the Royal Opera House, uh, Laurent Brunet, invited us to have a photo shoot in the Hall of Mirrors, which is very, very unusual to be able to use it. Uh, the security is so tight. And on the way there, we were passing the Royal Chapel, one of the most beautiful chapels in the world. And they have concerts there on a regular basis. And he asked if we would like to return with another production, but also to do a concert in the Royal Chapel in 2017. It's an incredible honor. Uh, we were the first North American company to form in the chapel. And 2017, as you know, coincided with the Canada 150 celebrations. And we became part of the official Canada 151 celebrations in France. And we thought this is the time for us to look at something uniquely Canadian. We had got to know Edwin Huizinga, great Baroque violinist, but uh, a real crossover musician. And we asked Edwin if he would create a piece of music that would be a pas de deux between him and a dancer. And one of our dancers, Tyler Gledhill, a wonderful Baroque dancer, a wonderful, uh, a wonderful eight years of training at the National Ballet School, but essentially a contemporary dancer now. And they created a pas de deux that was like an angel and an instrumentalist working together, literally physically working together as Edwin played. And that became part of our presentation that was an hour and a half long of uh, dancing and singing and some original music in 2017 in the Royal Chapel at Versailles. Uh, it was such an enormous success. They asked if we would like to come back and develop it still further a year after that. And that's when we started adding vocal music and decided that we would look at the poetry of, now I pronounce his name Rilke. I'm not sure what the, the correct pronunciation is. But Rilke is a poet that Jeanette grew up with. Jeanette is Swiss, but like so many Swiss children, she grew up with German lessons, with French lessons on a regular basis. Her mother was a linguist. And Rilke's poetry, when she hit her teens, was something that she was used to reading. And she introduced me to Rilke and his mystical poetry. 
it had an enormous appeal for Jeanette and me both. And we chose one of his poems uh, about an angelic visitation and asked that, that that be developed as part of the original composition. So we wanted to have something that would link to the, uh, the pas de deux. Again, uh, a, marvelous, a marvelous success, something really thrilling. That was for a baritone, for uh, Jesse Blumberg, and also for Mireille Asla, a Canadian soprano. Powerful music, all of our dancers. And it had suddenly turned into something that was about 20, 25 minutes long. It became clear after that, that we were onto something and should continue developing. We continued looking at Ryoko's poetry about angels. And uh, of course there was so much and this wonderful symbolist poetry. We continued developing it and we started using it as an opener for productions in Toronto, in Chicago at the Harris Theater for Music and Dance when we had our debut there and in Versailles now in the Royal Opera House. Uh, as it became clear that this was going to turn into a major work, it also seemed clear to Jeanette and me, to David Fallis, our music director, that wonderful as the real film was, you couldn't have an entire opera based on that because the narrative, the sense of narrative isn't strong enough. Rilke is about impressions. It is symbolist. Uh, we had to have something that would start to hold the story together. And that's when we turn to Milton and Paradise Lost, because of course Milton is the great English uh, storyteller. And as, as much as Rilke is free form, Milton pulls everything into a coherent storyline. And we thought to marry these two things together, we're not trying to create a work that has a beginning, a middle and an end. It's a very open impressionistic work, but we are dealing with stories, with myths or histories that come from the Jewish, the Islamic, and the Christian tradition. When you listen to those, when you look at those excerpts, it seems, oh, it's, we're looking at Christian stories, but these stories are actually common to all three of those traditions. And so we are beginning with the fall of the rebel angels, which is described in all of those traditions, and the expulsion of the most beautiful angel in creation, the most beautiful creation of Lucifer from heaven. And we work from there, we work our way through to a particular point in history. And the fall of man and the potential of redemption for mankind without being explicit. You know, you, you mentioned all, all these, you know, Judeo-Christian traditions. And I, you know, I do think opera definitely has a long history of utilizing religious stories, religious allegories. Yes. How do you make something that uses religion or uses religious stories without making it a religious piece? You know, and that's an interesting question. And of course, it's not a liturgical piece at all. But I think it's about not being overly specific. And this is where Rilke comes into play. Because of course, when you're dealing with these sort of heroic stories, you are dealing with stories that are common to virtually all cultures. You're dealing with stories that are literally prehistoric stories that have been handed down by word of mouth until they actually start being written. Anyone who reads the Psalms cannot possibly read them without being struck by the fact you feel as though you're reading Homer. The same images are there, the same language is there, the same sacrifices are there. Homer and the Psalms are, are like this. One informs the other. The same thing, anyone from the Islamic tradition who would listen to uh, our production of Angel could easily say, well, this is an Islamic story. Uh, we're looking at myths, we're looking at stories or histories, depending on your point of view, that are iconic. And the idea of the hero, the hero who is able to somehow bring information to humanity that is going to help us deal with the incredible angst and uh, sadness of 
the human condition. That can be Prometheus bringing fire to uh, mankind. That can be Orfeo, who actually goes to Hades and brings Eurydice back with him because his love is strong enough to be able to overcome death. I mean, that's, these are images that you can call them religious, but I think when they are presented in a context, uh, again, as I said, that is loose enough, they simply become hero stories. And as people have always said for generations about Milton, in his story, Lucifer becomes the first great anti-hero in the history of Western literature. Uh, just to bring you back, you, you mentioned, you know, this started amidst the, 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 the tragedy uh, in Paris. What kind of, you know, going back to saying, you know, art, arts is essential, what kind of perspective did that give you? You know, this, this great shooting had just happened and, and, and here you are trying to create an art piece. Yes. You know, it's interesting, it's interesting you would say that. I received an incredible letter from Jean Lamont, who was first violin for that. Jean died so tragically this year. But she was at that time the, uh, the artistic director and first violin for Kapo Music. And when we got back to Toronto, her letter, I wish I had it in front of me so I could quote it to you, but she was just saying it was one of the most moving experiences he had ever had artistically in her life. You could feel the nervousness, the terror that was everywhere in Paris, in Versailles at that time. But that insistence that you were not going to be terrified by terror, in fact, that you were going to answer terror with something that you think could be a legitimate answer and say, no, that is not the reality. This is the reality. The striving toward balance, the striving toward beauty, the striving toward uh, perfection is something that countermands and even eradicates that sense of terror. And I think it becomes uh, an extremely brave statement, an important statement. And it's not just a statement for the artists who are on stage. It's also a cathartic experience for the audience sitting there and experiencing it as the terror subsides and something else takes over. And they are able to leave the theater having had exactly what Baroque theater is supposed to be, a cathartic experience, and they leave cleansed, they leave clean, they leave as a blank page and ready to start living their life again. You know, I, in a way I, I see some parallels with what's been happening the last year and a half, you know, everyone, whatever side of whatever debate you sit on, you know, people are always saying we're living in fear, you know, they, they use fear to, you know, advance whatever agenda they might have. Um, have you been able, or how do you go about uh, finding an equilibrium um, what, when there's sort of so much of that noise going on? You know, it's interesting. I do feel that as artists, once we find ourselves in a controlled environment, in a rehearsal studio, or even rehearsing by Zoom, even just having meetings, I find that you suddenly start to cocoon yourself with something that, just like that performance in Versailles, starts acting as a buffer against that fear, that negativity, that terror. That doesn't mean that we want to play fast and loose. But if we had wanted to be perfectly safe, we would never have produced Handel's Resurrection. We would never have produced uh, Angel. Uh, every step of the process was a risk. Uh, we, had, we had COVID tests on a daily basis. We spent $125,000 on COVID tests in order to do uh, a, um, resurrection. That meant we had a nurse here all the time, an infection control agent. People were sent to and from only in cabs. I mean everything you could imagine. But the fact is we still could not control everything. People had to decide, did you want to be part of it or did you not? Uh, it didn't say anything about them as human beings that they chose not to. Uh, it was simply a choice. But there were people who really felt that this emotionally was precisely what they needed. They needed to make a firm statement for themselves personally as an artist that that's not to say they're not feeling fear. It's a question what you do with fear. Let's face it, I mean, it, 
You can't be a brave person unless you feel fear. Bravery is a reaction to that. It's a decision. If you feel no fear, if you feel no nervousness, you're just a psychopath, you're a sociopath. But we had a studio full of people who were nervous, who did have the same fears as everyone else who was out there, but decided to do something different with that or work past that or work through that for their own very personal reasons. I think it did tremendous things for them as artists. And I think it also then of course had an enormous impact for the people who got to experience it, who were watching it as, as witnesses as opposed as, uh, yes, I would say as witnesses. I do like to think of our audience as participants as well, because we, we hope that we are involving them emotionally to the point that they are not just warriors, but it's something, again, that was cleansing for our artists. I'd like to think it was cleansing for our artists. Um, you know, we're, we've been talking a lot about great operas and, you know, there's one, I guess, musician out of Canada that's gotten into a lot of operas lately, uh, Rufus Wainwright. I know he's done a yes. lot with uh, COC. Yeah. I'm curious as to whether there might be a collaboration with him at all in the future. Has, has that ever been discussed? It hasn't been discussed and uh, only because, as I said, our collaborations tend to be something that happen uh, rather organically. We seldom find ourselves going after someone. Um, and I think that's why something like Angel has been possible. Uh, it was because we knew Edwin Huizinga and then later Christopher Bacon, who was also one of the composers on this project. It's because we knew them and we knew of their personal interests that we first approached Edwin, for example, to do this pas de deux. But while we were having lunch one day with Misha and discussing projects with her, and just mentioned in passing, we were working with Edwin, Misha instantly said, oh my God, I just finished a project with Edwin. I absolutely adore him. I want him to write something for me. And she went on and on. We had no idea they even knew each other. So there was sitting in front of us our answer. What's the next iteration of this project? Misha has to be part of it. And that's the sort of thing that I like. I like to have things develop that way uh, whenever possible. So who knows who is in our future? But at the moment, we've only scratched the surface in terms of what Edwin, what Christopher Bagan are able to bring to us. I think we're going to be hearing a lot more of their music in the future. Um, you, you dedicate this performance to Jean, um, who, who you've mentioned a, a couple of times. Uh, what did she mean to Tafel music? What did she mean to Opera Atelier? You know, the, the uh, period instrument movement to begin with on a very technical point simply would not be what it is. It would not have had the international impact that it has had, uh, the, the period instrument music in Canada, if it were not for Jean Lamont. Her energy, her focus, her artistry is something that drove the entire experience and drove Kaffelmusen. Uh, she was integral to, to how the period music, how the original instrument movement grew and developed uh, over the past 35, 40 years. Uh, certainly, I mean, Jean was the first person to put together a small orchestra for opera Italian when we did a production of Bach's Coffee Cantata at the Royal Ontario Museum. Just a few people on stage experimenting. Jean came in for free. She brought in other people with her, including Christina Mahler, her partner, for free. And uh, again, that, that fierce imagination and commitment where she was there to assist us in helping Opera Italy become sort of a viable organization, artist, or rather musically, uh, she also introduced us to David Fallis, our music director for the last 35 years. Uh, she's been integral to what we've done virtually every step of the way. I can't possibly think of Opera Atelier without thinking of Jean. I can't think of Topham's without thinking of Jean. She'll always be uh, a presence and uh, someone who's, whose life uh, will continue to have an impact on now just the music scene in general, because now we're not just talking about early music, you go and listen to the Toronto Symphony's production of Messiah, things are happening on stage that would never have happened 30 years ago. They would be the first to admit it. They are, we have all learned from each other. 
Jean was the person who finally got everyone to think, we're all swimming in the same soup. We're not in different camps. Let's learn from each other and explore with each other. That's why we're going to be exploring late 19th, early 20th century repertoire with Tafo music uh, next year. It will still be period productions. You can have a period production of Stravinsky. You can have a period production of Debussy. What does that mean? We look at what they know, what they knew, not just where they were going, but where they came from. If I listen to Debussy, if I listen to Ravel, if I listen to, uh, to Ronaldo Hunt, I hear 17th century French music. That's integral to what they were able to create. And if we have an orchestra that's used to interpreting that music, and we move into late 19th, early 20th century music, we're going to have a very different experience than what you find with the orchestras of Perry, wonderful as they are, playing Perry uh, On that note, where do you, do you draw a distinction of where, I guess, sort of period music ends and modern music begins? Is, is there? No, I make no distinction whatsoever. I think uh, some time ago, we redrew the map in terms of what was a period performance. If you can imagine, 20 years ago, when we produced Mozart's The Magic Food on period instruments, it was the first time a staged production had happened in North America. It created so much dissension and such a sensation in Toronto. We had no idea what we were getting into. People from CBC waiting outside to interview people as they were leaving. Scalpers selling tickets for people as they were coming in. And also some furious responses from the mainstream at that time, people who said, if you continue pursuing this repertoire, standard repertoire, we'll let our displeasure be known at all levels of government that it's a misuse of public funds. You shouldn't be doing it. You should be doing ancient repertoire. And even then we were arguing, but a period production of Mozart, there's nothing to be afraid of. We're just doing something differently from what you do it. And so imagine 20 years ago, Mozart on period instruments was unthinkable in this country and in North America, at least in the stage production. We've continued pushing from there into the 19th century repertoire, then into Gluck. Uh, the, uh, we had a marvelous production of Freischutz a number of years ago, which is really thrilling. We are definitely moving in the 19th and 20th century production. I want to do a period production of Carmen and get back to what was the thought behind Carmen, that extremely French opera. It is not the Spanish opera at all. It's a French opera. And if you walk into the Comédie Française and you see that beautiful uh, piece of sculpture of the first Carmen and see what she was, who she was, the radiant charm and youthfulness of her, and I compare that to the man-eating vampire-like creatures we see today as Carmen has to become badder and badder and badder. How bad can she be? How terrifying can she be before the entire show falls apart? I want to go back to what Carmen was, not so I can copy it, but we can learn something from it. And that's going to be true as we explore late 19th, early 20th century repertoire, any repertoire. A period production is anything that happens after the original production is taken place. Uh, and finally, is there is there something that you want the audience who watches Angel, something you want them to take away from the performance at all? Yes, I would say I want the audience to realize, particularly if they're new to our work, you don't need to be an initiate. There's nothing that you have to understand. If you want to read the program, by all means, inform yourself. But if you need to read a program in order to enjoy a production, I think something is wrong. Let it wash over you. Let it just wash over you. When I listen to a great production of Shakespeare, I don't understand every word. I don't know what everything means, but great performers are going to help, are going to carry me through that. And I think this is the case with Angel as well. There's a thrilling storyline there. It's not absolutely linear, but we're taking you on a journey. We're taking you on an emotional journey as much as a chronological journey. Just sit back, let it happen. Surtitles are in front of you or subtitles, uh, although it is all in English anyway, but some of the English, even some of the English is so archaic, you're, you're left thinking, what in the world is this? At one point, Adam and Eve say, 
we choke back the bird, the the, the bird song. Uh, the, we choking back a bird song. Uh, what does that? What does that mean? Choking back back bird song of longing. I'm not sure, but in the context, it becomes something so beautiful, so evocative. Uh, don't try to understand it; just experience it. Uh, well, Angel streams uh, on October the twenty eighth. Uh, at 7 p.m. Eastern, and it's available until uh, November the 12th. Uh, and for tickets, can people just go to uh, MPMG Arts uh, as well as operaatelier.com? www.operaatelier.com. Uh, we can put you in touch then with the Royal Conservatory who's handling our tickets. Um, yeah, no problem. Perfect. Well, um, it's a very uh, exciting show. If arts fans are looking for something maybe a little bit different, something that they haven't seen before, they like classics, they like poetry, they like Misha, there's so much stuff. Uh, I encourage them to check out Angel uh, on uh, October the, the 28th. Uh, Marshall, thanks so much for, for joining me this morning. Thank you, Dan. I hope you will be our guest for that performance as well. Yes, yes, I, uh, I, shall, I, should, I shall be there most likely. Fantastic, thank you. All right, you have a, you have a good day now. You too, thank you. Bye. Bye. Bye now. Bye. And once again, that was my conversation with Marshall Pinkowski, founding artistic director of Opera Atelier. Their new show, Angel, streams this Thursday at 7 p.m. Eastern, uh, and the stream will be available until... November the 12th. Information are at operaatelier.com. That's opera, A-T-E-L-I-E-R dot com. Thanks for tuning in. I'll see you next time. Goodbye. For now.